Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. If you've seen the film The Big Short or read the book of the same name by Michael Lewis, you'll know that some strange-sounding three-letter financial products helped trigger the largest financial crisis in history. Mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, collateralised debt obligations, or CDOs, and structured investment vehicles, or SIVs, SIVs, were all part of the alphabet soup behind the crash. Now, it may seem crazy to suggest that we're about to do the same thing again 14 years later, but that's what my guest on this episode of the podcast believes. Hilary Allen is a professor at the American University Washington College of Law, where she teaches financial regulation. She's recently published research in which she argues, convincingly in my book, that we've created another market of crazy complexity and full of hidden risks. That market is called decentralized finance, or DeFi. It's the latest extension of the cryptocurrency boom that began with Bitcoin early last decade. And it's full of its own acronyms, DAOs, NFTs, DAPs, DMMs and DEXs. Alan says that regulators need to act now to prevent another dramatic financial collapse. Listen in to hear her explain why. You can support the New Money Review podcast using Patreon. To do so, click on the link in the right margin of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com. Every dollar, euro or pound helps me grow the podcast and manage the running costs of the site. And if you enjoy this podcast, please like it and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues. Hilary, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Sure. Um, my name's Hilary Allen. I'm a professor of law at American University, Washington College of Law. I specialize in financial regulation and more specifically in financial stability regulation, which is the regulation that aims to avoid financial crises. Great. So you recently published a couple of, or you published one paper and uh, and also some, some written testimony to the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs uh, in December, and more recently a paper on DeFi in February, where you point out what you see as the growing risks to financial stability from the rise of cryptocurrencies, and in particular stable coins and what we call decentralized finance or, or DeFi. What is it in this uh, trend that's got your attention and why do you think it's creating risks to the broader financial system? Uh, it's an excellent question. I think what has really struck me the most is how quickly we forget. There are so many parallels I see with the lead up to the 2008 crisis. Um, and I see these with crypto more generally. You, you mentioned my, my testimony in my paper. I also have recently published a book called Driverless Finance uh, that looks at these kinds of parallels. But I wrote the book, you know, finished reading, writing the book a few months, well, I guess a year ago now. Um, and since then, we've just seen an acceleration of parallels, I think, with the uh, lead up to the 2008 crisis. New types of financial services growing beyond the regulated perimeter, characterized by complexity, rigidity, new forms of leverage, potential for runs. All of this sounds so familiar, and yet people aren't heeding the warning signs that this could be setting us up for a future financial crisis. Okay, great. So when, when 2008 happened and there were lots of um, um, there were studies in the aftermath of the crash trying to identify what had gone wrong, and a lot of people focused on this term shadow banking, so the kind of financial 
intermediation that happened outside the regulated system. And anyone who's seen the film, The Big Short, will be familiar with some of those strange products that got created in the run-up and, and then went terribly wrong. Um, why do you think we're seeing possibly a repeat of that? And, and what are the parallels between now and then? Well, I love that you mentioned The Big Short because I'm seeing an increased usage of Big Short memes on Twitter, which shows that I'm not the only one seeing these parallels. Um, so when you are trying to create functional equivalents of financial services, but you're trying to do it in a way that occurs beyond the regulatory perimeter, you're essentially having to make those more complex, right? Because you're trying to create the same outcome, but in a way that avoids the regulation. So that inherently involves complexity. And when you have more complexity, it's harder to understand how things are going to work in particularly when something goes horribly wrong. And if we're worried about financial stability and financial crises, what we're really worried about is when things go horribly wrong. So complexity lends this certain opacity to it. And, and it's interesting because if you listen to people talk about crypto, they say, well, crypto is entirely transparent. You can see everything you want to see on the blockchain. And I, I disagree with that. Yes, there's a lot of information that you can see on the blockchain, um, but there's a lot of uh, trading that happens off chain. There are a lot of relationships that aren't, you know, contractual relationships that aren't necessarily clear from looking at the chain. So we don't really know all that much about how DeFi works. And, and just for your readers who aren't uh, familiar, DeFi stands for at least purportedly decentralized finance and is finance that occurs essentially on the blockchain, functional equivalents of products and services um, that you, you know, would typically receive from banks or other financial institutions, but it's happening on the blockchain. And so by doing so, it does manage to avoid a lot of the regulations that would otherwise um, apply. And it's really, in my view, it's sort of unnecessarily complex in its attempts to get around that, that regulation. Okay, great. I'd like to come on to DeFi with you in, in a minute, but, but perhaps we could go back, you know, for those who don't remember the markets before 2008, who weren't around then, who might not have seen the big short recently, you seen it a while ago. <laughs> Um, in your in your recent paper, you talked about the first version of shadow banking centering on credit default swaps, mortgage-backed securities, and money market mutual funds. Could you just remind listeners of how those so three areas of the market interacted and how they how they kind of led to the crisis? Sure. So going back to ancient history, um, so pre pre two thousand and eight, um, so credit default swaps were a type of derivative. Um, a derivative is simply a contract that derives its value from something else. Credit default swaps, their value derived from some underlying debt instrument like a bond. So if something bad happened to the bond, um, if it defaulted or if the issuer of the bond was downgraded or something like that, then you would be paid under your credit default swap. It kind of worked like an insurance policy. But it wasn't exactly like an insurance policy because if you take out an insurance policy, you need to have an interest in whatever you're insuring. So for example, you can't take out a life insurance policy on your neighbor because that gives you some pretty horrible incentives. Um, with a credit default swap though, there's no insurable interest requirement. So you can buy a credit default swap that references any bond or any other debt instrument anywhere, as long as you can find someone to sell you the credit default swap, which means that these could be used as a way of creating new types of leverage in the system because you could sort of bet 
you can have so many bets against one underlying debt instrument. So that's the idea behind the credit default swaps. Now, the underlying debt instruments that they often were referencing in the lead up to the financial crisis were usually some mortgage related debt instrument like a mortgage backed security. So basically, the story of mortgage-backed securities is that they, you know, they used to be that if you took a mortgage out, you had a relationship with your bank until you paid your mortgage off. But mortgage-backed securitization created a structure where banks could sell your mortgage to someone else, and that someone else was a special purpose entity created purely for the purpose of buying a whole pool of mortgages. And then they would sell interests in the pool of mortgages and that created diversification and you know there was a lot of great things about the securitization structure the problem was it got rid of incentives to make sure that investment sorry that the original mortgages were good and so mortgage securitization is only as good as the mortgages that are in there um if you have you know crappy mortgages in there, you're going to have crappy securities coming out of it. And the, one of the problems that I stress in my paper is that these this whole structure was set up to be extremely rigid. It was set up to make it hard to modify underlying obligations. And that rigidity, I think, is something we should really be paying attention to because it's something that I'm seeing a lot in DeFi as well. These are the kinds of contracts that are being written and the, and the way they're being written. Exactly, right? Yeah. So 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 with shadow banking 1.0 with mortgage backed securitization, we're talking about sort of paper contracts, but the, but yeah. they you know they were designed to be bankruptcy remote so that things yeah. couldn't be discharged in bankruptcy. They were designed to make it harder to um, negotiate over the underlying mortgage if the borrower is having problems. So that, right. that that's what I'm talking about rigidity there. Yeah. Um, and then you mentioned money market mutual funds. So these weren't, you know, a creation of the the early aughts. You know, money market mutual funds have been around since the seventies, um, but they too were a form of of what we call regulatory arbitrage, a, a functional equivalent of a banking service. They were basically designed to create an equivalent for bank deposits, and they had a lot of the same fragilities as bank deposits. And when two thousand and eight hit there was a run on those money market mutual funds and that were interconnected with all the other parts of the system. And that also exacerbated the panic that was happening in 2008. Okay. So the the parallel between what's happening now and what happened then would be, or the entities that resemble what happened then in the current market would be what? So for money market mutual funds, you'd have something like stable coins. And for credit default swaps or rather for the you know the rigid parts of the system you're talking about contracts within cryptocurrency markets contracts within defi and things being set up not to be able to handle losses very well yes and and when we say contracts um what i'm specifically discussing in the paper is smart contracts which to be clear are not actually contracts at all in the legal sense of the term but they are computer programs that are designed to automate the relationship between the parties. Things like payments, margin calls, things like that are all designed to happen automatically. So the, an argument I make is that we are upping the rigidity of relationships between parties by several orders of magnitude when we bring these smart contracts into the picture. And those smart contracts are a major building block of, of DeFi. So DeFi is, as I said, sort of a, a functional equivalent of financial services. 
Um, you know, there's ways to make investments. There's ways to make loans. Um, there's sort of their function is very familiar, but the way they achieve that function is extremely complicated and uses a lot of perhaps unfamiliar things like an underlying distributed ledger or blockchain tokens, stable coins, and then these smart contracts. They're the building blocks of this new ecosystem. Okay. What about the aspect of leverage? Because obviously in the run-up to 2008, the volumes of leverage in the in the credit derivatives markets, in the mortgage-backed securities markets were huge. Um, and if something happened as it did to the housing market in the US, it had a, a big impact across the economy. You know, Via the banking system, it brought... It brought some banks down and 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 basically torpedoed the uh, the economy as a whole. Is that really the case with what's going on in crypto and DeFi? Surely the the volumes of financial contracts, the the size of the crypto market is is much smaller than than you know we're talking about for credit derivatives and mortgage backed securities in two thousand and eight. So. I think at this point, I think you're, you're, we're valid that, that it's not big enough yet. Um, but I think we're poised at the beginning of exponential growth. And one of the arguments I make is that we shouldn't wait until it gets too big um, yeah. to start taking steps. So the actual subprime mortgage sector itself was not that big, right? It was the the, the layers of mortgage-backed securities and credit default swaps, et cetera, that were built on top of it that caused the problems. And so... What we're seeing happening in um, DeFi, you know, is basically anyone can create a token. Um, and so there's not sort of the, that natural supply constraint that you would ordinarily see. And so the possibility of people creating an expen- exponential number of tokens um, and uh, there's, it's really hard to get data on what's happening in the DeFi ecosystem. You know, the, the people who are watching this, like the Financial Stability Board and the Bank for International Settlements, are seeing increased uses of leverage um, there. We're seeing rehypothecation of stablecoins. So it is happening. I don't think it's happened yet on the scale of, you know, of, of 2008, but I don't think it's unrealistic to think we could get there. Yeah, and presumably the, the chains of transmission, if something goes wrong, are not necessarily visible in advance of the event. I'm thinking back to 2008 again and the fact that it was, you know, AIG, an insurance company that uh, acted as one of the main transmission mechanisms because the, you know, the investment banks all had contracts with it and then it was unable to repay them and then they were all suddenly at risk themselves. You know, that was something that people spotted after the event or some people maybe saw it, but a lot of people didn't. And uh, I'm just wondering if, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing any other possible transmission mechanisms now in what's going on. Yeah, so you're right that sort of figuring out transmission mechanisms ahead of time is very complicated and, and you know, it's, it's not always clear because the way that parties and markets interact in normal times is not predictive of how they will interact during some kind of panic. So in terms of what we're seeing in terms of spillovers, um, you know, there are the possibilities of, of contractual relationships, but then there's also, there is um, sentiment or confidence spillovers, and we're starting to see um, market sentiment about crypto markets move more in lockstep with the stock market to the point where if people start to, um, if there's a panic in crypto, that may cause people to panic about stocks. If people panic about stocks, then we see sell-offs, and then that can create fire sale dynamics that translate to other markets as well. 
So there's those kind of mechanisms um, for contagion. Um, I think the the mechanism that I'm most worried about is if banks start to invest heavily in crypto, just like I was, you know, the, the, the rubber really hit the road in 2008 when banks were heavily exposed to subprime mortgages and credit default swaps and things like that. So um, something I advocate for in both my um, congressional testimony and in the paper and in my book, Jarvelous Finance, is that the most important thing to do is to keep the banks out of the crypto um, ecosystem. Yeah. Do you think there's really a risk that the banks will get heavily involved uh, because they're the capital charges that the BIS introduced, I think, a year or so ago for them to do, for, for them to hold crypto assets on the balance sheets are, uh, you know, very expensive. Um, so, uh, you know, is there really a risk that they'll start holding these assets more actively? Um, I think there is if there's profit to be made, and it may not be directly holding them. So, for example, they may be more comfortable purchasing a derivative that references one or investing in an ETF that's backed by crypto. I mean, yeah. there's ways of getting around those capital charges um, if you don't invest directly in the assets. So I do think that that is a real risk. Okay. Um, in your paper, you've you've argued. I, f- I found this a very interesting point that y- you think that um, some some regulators have already talked about um, applying bank like regulations to stable coins and other entities within the DeFi ecosystem. You you think that's a bad idea? Could you explain a bit why? So it actually is a nice segue from the point I just made. I think it's critical to keep the banks completely hived off from the DeFi crypto stablecoin ecosystem. If you treat stablecoins as bank deposits, essentially, and if you insure them, then you are integrating those with the um, traditional financial system. And more to the point, you are putting all the explicit and implicit government guarantees about supporting banks behind stablecoins, crypto, DeFi. And so, you know, there's a phrase we use called moral hazard to describe a situation where that that awareness of government support, backing, et cetera, causes people to do riskier things. And we have decided as a policy matter that that makes sense if we're talking about regular bank deposits, right? That the moral hazard involved makes sense because it's worth supporting banks because of the positive role they play in funding the broader economy. I don't see the equivalent benefit with DeFi. And so the moral hazard associated with insuring DeFi and stablecoins doesn't have sort of this socially beneficial payoff. And then, you know, you also have to think about what else you're encouraging in terms of the many other risks that crypto poses, like environmental or potential national security issues as well. Mm. You've talked about, you know, preventing banks and other regulated financial institutions from getting involved in this area. What about the risk that the reverse occurs, that some very rich crypto tycoons or rich crypto exchanges start buying regulated financial institutions and you know, kind of getting, you know, reversing the, 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 the move, but ending it where, where we end up with the same net effect, whether the two sectors are kind of combined? Well, in the United States, at least, and I'm not as familiar necessarily with other countries' regulatory regimes, but regulators have a say over who become you know, the, the controlling shareholder of a bank or a bank um, holding company, and they have a say in who manages banks. So if there's the regulatory will, that can be stopped in the United States. And, and you know, we, we've long here had a, um, a separation between banking and commerce. Um, so 
that exists. I'm not sure about in other countries what the mechanisms are. I know that the, the separation between banking and commerce isn't necessarily a pillar of regulation in other countries. So I guess that that potentially could be a possibility in other jurisdictions. Yeah, it just struck me yesterday, there was an article in the Financial Times about Binance, the cryptocurrency exchange, looking to get involved in traditional financial markets in the, in the UK and maybe to buy regulated entities. I don't know whether this was a piece of Binance PR or whether this is actually something that's being discussed seriously, but it, it did strike me the article because we've had a year or two of regulators saying you know, this particular ex- cryptocurrency exchange is banned from operating in the markets and then being shut out of payment systems. And yet here they are again trying to to come back. And the, you know, as they say, money talks. And the guy running Binance is a very rich man. He's in the top 10 or 15 of the world's billionaires. So uh, just wondering how, you know, whether this is a possibly another development we should have to keep watching. I, I think it's definitely something to keep watching. And I, and as I said, I don't know what the, the UK's rules are about um, bank ownership. Yeah. Yeah, let's see how that uh, develops. Now, let's talk a bit about DeFi. Um, now, I, there's a really you know great line in your uh, recent paper about you know, DeFi basically not being DeFi because it's not decentralized. And you say that anyone using a DeFi system has to trust in a combination of ISPs, core software developers, miners, wallets, exchanges, stablecoin issuers, oracles, providers of client APIs, and owners of governance tokens. So it's basically, you're saying that there's a, it's not decentralized at all. There are, there are a lot of hidden intermediaries that play a kind of controlling role behind the scenes. Yeah. And I mean, really, it, it depends on your definition of decentralized, right? Because so there's two different ways of looking at this, right? There's the people who I think are unquestionably intermediaries. And those are the wallet providers, the exchanges, um, those kinds of people, Um and 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 the provide the the um, Infura and Alchemy people like them that that provide the the client APIs that most people need to access um, their crypto holdings and etc. And and those I think I think it's you can say pretty unequivocally that they are un- intermediaries and therefore things are not decentralized. Now, from what I understand, if you are extremely skilled in computing, you could find a way to do an end run around some of those people, but it would be in many respects, a full-time job trying to figure out how to do that. And that's just not a plausible outcome for most people. So for most people, those, those people are unequivocally um, intermediaries. Then you get into sort of perhaps the more loaded question about whether the holders of governance tokens and the, um, the miners and the core developers of the software, whether those are intermediaries. Um, and, you know, this, this, I think that is really ultimately a semantic question, though, because you are, as someone investing in DeFi, dependent on them. You are dependent on what they decide to do with the protocol. You may, you know, be invested in a DAO, a decentralized um, autonomous organization, and have some kind of governance token. But if you're, it's just like being a shareholder in in Apple. If you're one shareholder in Apple, you don't have a say on how Apple is run. If you've got one governance token, you're not going to have a say in how things are run either. You're, you are dependent on the people who have the, the power. And there's high concentrations of wealth in DeFi. So generally speaking, with a lot of these, um, a lot of these protocols, you have very, um, very centralized governance. So whether you call it an intermediary or not, 
you are very much dependent on others and you might not know who they are. And so to say that, you know, you can participate in DeFi without having to trust anyone, I think is just entirely incorrect and misleading. Hmm. What um, feedback have you had from policymakers, regulators to the, um, the arguments you've been making? So it, it really does depend. I think a lot of them have been very receptive. I think there's a emperor's new clothes aspect to a lot of crypto and DeFi. And there's this sense that, well, maybe I just don't get this. Something, you know, you hear from a lot of regulators and just people in general, like this doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't seem to make sense, but surely there must be something there. And I, I have to say, I counted myself as one of that camp for a long time. I was much more cautious about calling it out because I thought perhaps I'm missing something there. But the more I've looked into it, the more I've studied it, I'm at the point where even if there is something there, it is not worth all the risks that are involved, the environmental risks, the consumer protection risks, the financial stability risks, the national security risks. I mean, this, this, um, you know, crypto technology has been around for over a decade, which is, which is a very long time in tech years and still doesn't have a killer app. And that should tell you something. Um, and so I think a lot of policymakers have been relieved to see this paper and say, okay, so I was right. You know, I, I haven't missed something. And so I think there's been a, a receptive audience um, for that. Um, with that said, you know, there is there are some true believers in the potential of DeFi. Um, I would say there's no true believers in the reality of DeFi because right now DeFi is kind of a hot mess of scams and stuff like that. But yeah. there, there are definitely some true believers in its potential. But I think, you know, I hope they take the time to read, particularly the latter half of the paper, which is just to realize that if you're trying to set up a decentralized system, it's going to be inherently complicated and inefficient, right? The inefficiency is the point of decentralization. Yeah. If we go back to proof of work and Satoshi Nakamoto, let's yeah. make this stuff as cumbersome as possible because that is the only way we can avoid having intermediaries. So we start with that clunky, clunky back end. And now we've layered intermediaries on top of that. So we've gotten away from even the idea of not having intermediaries. Mm. So to think that that would ever be the best solution to what are very real problems of, you know, financial inclusion and sort of um, payments inefficiencies, like it, this would never be the solution. And so what you often hear from tech people is that this is a solution in solve of, sorry, in search of a problem. Yeah. And what we really need to do. And, and, and I guess my biggest concern with the policymakers that are the true believers is that I worry that this fixation on the potential is distracting them from what the actual problems are and developing solutions to those problems rather than trying to make uh, crypto-related solutions fit the problems that they're experiencing. Yeah. And, and have you noticed a shift at the regulators over the last year? Gary Gensler has been quite outspoken uh, in terms of consumer protection risks and he hasn't spoken maybe so much about financial stability risks, but do you think that, that there's been a, a shift in, in tone over the last year? I'm not necessarily sure about the regulators. I mean, I think Gary Gensler has been sort of skeptical about this stuff for a while. Um, but you're right, the SEC's ambit is consumer protection rather than financial stability. And so 
um, you know, I'd like to see the Financial Stability Oversight Council and the Treasury Department, um, you know, take this a little more, um, look at this a little more holistically in terms of, of financial stability problems. Where I have seen a shift, I think, is just in the the discourse um, in general from you know the Twitterati and and you know other people talking about this stuff. I think for a long time that sense of I must be missing something um, stayed with people and people felt the need to sort of pull their punches. Um, And I think there has been a shift generally speaking in the discourse about people not feeling the need to pull their punches anymore. And I hope that that will percolate up into the different financial regulators and that they will, you know, deploy the same kind of skepticism uh, instead of just accepting at face value claims about the potential for this technology. Right. But at the same time, over the last 10 or probably even 20 years, um, regulators, governments as, as well have been promoting the idea that technological innovation is good in itself. And, and you know, it's, it's, it would be pretty uh, sizable about turn for them to turn around and say, Oh, actually, we may have got it wrong. Um, I mean, I can certainly see that in the UK, where there's been a huge emphasis on promoting fintechs, and uh, and and they're kind of reluctant to change the narrative. Yeah, no, I, I think that's um, a particularly um, perceptive comment, especially with regard to the UK, which has really been all in on innovation. And, and generally speaking, uh, you know, it's also true of the United States, um, perhaps to a, not the same degree. Um, you know, technological innovation is important. We just need to realize that technology can't solve things on its own. When you're dealing with structural political problems, technology is at best a tool that has to be deployed in the context of political and structural solutions. And so um, I don't think we, what we need is a, you know, a, a rejection of technological innovation. What we need is a recognition of what it can and can't do and the context in which it needs to be deployed. And so I think if we recognize that what we need are political, structural, and technological solutions, let's start with the problem. Start with the problem that you really need to fix and then figure out the best tech to do that. And you may need to make some structural changes as well. Don't let the technology lead. And I, I appreciate that for, particularly in the UK, that that might require a little bit of a, a readjustment of, um, of approach. Yeah, and and finally, what's you know what's uh, trends are you keeping a close eye on for the remainder of this year to see if the you know winds are beginning to change direction? So um, we just had the executive order out um, from the Biden administration, which uh, I was not particularly thrilled about because it really did sort of seem to accept the technology as a solution um, without critically thinking about whether this is the right technology, whether, you know, in light of all its risks, um, in light of its, it's just inadequacies as a technology. But I have heard um, that the, there are different views within the Biden administration as well. And so I, what I'm hoping is that as more and more people feel emboldened to sort of point out that the emperor has no clothes, that we'll start to perhaps see a shift um, within the administration um, as you said, Gensler is very much um, on this on this trajectory, but I'm hoping to see other agencies increasingly become critical about this technology. 
Hilary, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.